Good evening. Hi, everybody. I'm Kyle DeCoyen. I'm the executive director here. Welcome to the Poetry Project. And thank you so much for being with us to celebrate this amazing uh, culmination and assembly of Steve Abbott's work edited by Jamie Townsend. Um, I'm gonna share just a little bit of biographical information about Steve Abbott and then Jamie will give a little more framing to um, putting together this work and, um, and, and Steve's life and writing. Steve Abbott was a poet, critic, Regan. Oh, James, could we adjust the projector? No, not at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's better. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Steve Abbott was a poet, critic, novelist, and editor. After moving to San Francisco in 1974, Abbott became a frequent contributor to local publications, including The Advocate, San Francisco Sentinel, and the Bay Area Reporter. In addition to serving as founding editor of the literary arts newsletter Poetry Flash and as publisher and editor of the literary journal Soup. He was an active organizer and participant in different reading series and discussion groups in the Bay Area, including Cloud House, Small Press Traffic, and the Left Right Conference, and was the first to use the term new narrative to describe the work of Bruce Boone and Robert Glick, among others. Abbott's writing was continuous with his activist practice, and he dedicated himself tirelessly to gay liberation efforts and AIDS activism until his death from AIDS-related complications in 1992. While he published a number of books of poetry and prose, in addition to criticism and articles, this book that we're celebrating tonight, Beautiful Aliens, is the first collection bringing together the remarkable breadth of this writer's work. And so we'd like to thank Night Boat Books, Jamie Townsend, the book's editor, and Alicia Abbott, Steve's daughter, for making this event and this book possible. Um, and we'd also like to thank tonight's readers, who, in addition to Jamie and Alicia, include Alyssa Court, Nayland Blake, Matthew Rodriguez, Todd Colby, Ariel Goldberg, Hugh Ryan, Luis Jaramillo, and Sarah Schulman. They'll be reading in that order with each reader introducing the next. And now it's my pleasure to hand things over to Jamie Townsend, who will give us a little more background into this book and the work. Thank you so much. This is a dream. Um, very, very happy that uh, we can be here tonight um, and uh, so happy with the with the people that have come here to celebrate Steve's work and um, uh, see this book uh, into the world on the East Coast. Um, we had a lovely launch uh, at the SF Public Library where uh, Steve's archives are um, uh, last, it was two months ago actually now. Um, uh, so it's wonderful to be back here um, and sharing uh, the work with you tonight. 
I am uh, going to read just a little bit of uh, an interview I did recently about the book um, to give some context, uh, and then I'm going to read uh, a poem titled Sebastian, which uh, gives the book's uh, anthology's uh, title and um, a very short piece of Steve's unpublished novel, Lost Causes, um, just so we get a little bit of poetry and prose. Um, so thank you again. Um, So about four years ago, Kevin Killian, uh, Steve's literary executor, clued me into the uh, archives. I hadn't started the process of putting together a book or even a book proposal yet, um, but I had read enough of Steve's work uh, to be interested in seeing more of it up close. Steve's archive is located in the special collections at the James C. Hormel LGBTQIA Center in the San Francisco Library uh, main branch. Um, and. Uh, in uh, winter of 2015, I arranged to view the collection for the first time. This is after I'd read some of Steve's work on my own. My first visit to the archive was with the plan to scan and begin digitizing a small collection of Steve's work for my own new narrative interest, um, including uh, his unpublished first novel, Lost Causes. Uh, I think that my first visit there, I, I barely got through one box of materials. Um, as I was going through it, uh, just seeing the wide variety of writings and artworks, including early journals detailing his first openly gay relationship while he was still married to his wife, Barbara, uh, his first trip to San Francisco in the 70s, as well as court documents from his trial in the late 60s for draft dodging as a conscientious objector. Um, I hunted through these materials. I, I looked through these materials and felt increasingly connected to his story um, better understanding the key elements and fixations which formed a through line to his widely varied practice, unrequited love, queer revolution, esoteric fascination, and the fear of obsolescence. Spending a lot of time in the archive confirmed what I already assumed about Steve's work. His published books of poetry are scattered with comics and photography and prose explanations, and his archive was a supersized version of that. So I think that the archive became my ideal model for putting together beautiful aliens. Uh, it was trusting in the natural affinity of the various materials included and seeing them as codependent and creating a larger, more coherent whole uh, when put together. Um, I found that reading Steve requires a certain level of self-awareness, being able to understand how a critique leveled at a particular cultural artifact or an examination of a particular autobiographical circumstance helps readers to understand the dynamics of queerness in the contemporary sense. How being outside of or in opposition to is not an aesthetic, but rather a phenomenological stance. In Steve's essays, he writes a lot about life in the 70s and 80s in the Bay Area, um, uh, in, in addition to uh, writing autobiographically uh, his experience of being a, a gay man in San Francisco during those years. Um, on the surface, it would seem that a lot of these essays, which examine largely bygone phenomenon, such as phone sex or the Stones Town Mall um, in San Francisco, uh, uh, would be useful in uh, creating a particular frame of reference linked to the years that Steve was alive. However, his permissiveness in using seemingly banal or obscure topics to explore complex expressions of desire shame, isolation, or resistance speaks to the timelessness of a lot of this work which might otherwise be labeled dated. 
This is not to say that all of Steve's writing is for a contemporary audience, but the best of it asks the readers to participate in an expanding discussion uh, beyond its seemingly humble origins. He risks being wrong or silly at times in order to ask questions to his readers. In his essay, Notes on Boundaries, New Narrative, Steve writes, the meaning of experience isn't always obvious. Borders shift. Then later, truth, love, friendship, lust, community, everything gets mixed up. It's statements like these uh, that, for me, really get to the heart of Steve's project. He's not looking to instruct. He's interested in a deeper understanding of his own limitations and consequently ours as well. But this is... Um, a poem titled Sebastian. The beautiful aliens in the movie theater have come to make love with the beautiful image. Yes, even of love kissing long arrows which kissed the thigh, bit the breast, and tongued the muscular curvature, the very bone of Sebastian. Ah, his elbow, thigh, and embarrassed knee. They came to dream over this power of his kiss, and while we remain unclear as to the exact nature of sanctity, the long sigh or erotic moan which wears a leopard's head, yet clearly by the end, by blood and perspiration of the end, moaning, longing, gradually everyone has become exhausted. Behold, what Roman, cone, what Roman coin blazing overhead, a dream vampire, a tattered holy card hanging by one thread. Nearing heaven, the aliens have a late Renaissance vis vision. The arrows typifying love do a lot of kissing. This is small comfort to Sebastian, who dies of them. The leopard's head represents the incontinence of those who like erotic movies too much. Roman coins are what are laid on, Sebastian eyes, on Sebastian's eyes when he dies. Being dead, he sees through them. The dream vampire is imaginary, but he drinks real blood. Beatrice will explain this and other mysteries of faith in heaven. So I'm just going to read one page of uh, Steve's uh, novel, Lost Causes. Um, and uh, there is a, a chapter of it uh, in, in the book that was reproduced. Um, sadly, the whole thing hasn't been uh, published, but... Maybe it will be. That night, Spencer dreamed he was locked in a tower. Maybe it was a hotel. He wasn't sure, but from his balcony, he could see white beaches and a silvery ocean that the sun bounced off of as blindingly as hammered gold. In Spencer's room was a large bed, a sunken bath, and a table laden with fruit and wine. Mirrors covered the walls. Several boys and girls he couldn't tell how many, because of the mirrors, romped in the bath. Spencer knew they were here for his pleasure. A boy came up and stroked his cock. His coppery skin was smooth as velvet. His black eyes were as black as agate. Only they threw off an emerald fire like the sun does when it sinks over the horizon. The boy smiled. Spencer could feel his warmth. To have sex with someone when you're about to be sacrificed is the hottest sex of all. Death, that's not the great sadness. Spencer's sadness was that he hadn't known until now how much he loved his life, a life he'd largely wasted. 
but this sadness also made him horny. <laughs> Only as long as he was eating, drinking, and fucking could he feel certain he was alive. The boy lifted his legs, and Spencer entered him. Spencer wanted to fuck him without stopping, but every time he thrust his cock into the boy, the walls shook and the mirrors shattered. As each mirror fell, like the breaking of promises, Spencer felt more free. Then the walls began to crumble, exposing Spencer's body to the cruel lash of the sun's rays. Still, Spencer couldn't stop. He fucked the boy until he felt his heart might burst. What would it feel like to rip out your lover's heart? What would it feel like to eat the heart as it throbbed in your hand? What would it, tomorrow Spencer would die. Tonight, he wanted to fuck himself into oblivion. The ocean is a big blue space. It's as wet as the sweat pouring off your body when you're fucking a boy for as long as you can before your heart is ripped out and eaten. In this bed, in this tower falling from the sky, Spencer fucked a beautiful boy while being whipped into a frenzy by the rays of a dying sun. Only this sun wasn't yellow. It wasn't orange, magenta, or red. The face of this sun was black as agate as it threw off emerald fires and sank into the sea. Thank you. Forgot the one thing I was supposed to do after this. <laughs> the next reader is Alyssa Court. Hey, everybody. Um, thank you so much, my dear friend Alicia Abbott, for asking me to do this. Thank you, Kyle. Love the Poetry Project. Worked here as a kid. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I'm going to read from Days, which I'm not going to really, he has a whole explanation, but I know we have like a time-limited yeah. portion here. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to dedicate this to Kevin Killian, who is a dear friend of mine. Um, Emptying the garbage, he comes upon a small leather case. Who left it here full of rags? Empty them out. Who? Why? Where was it or he before this? Curiosity. From sunup to sundown, around, behold this days of days to which is given attention. A find or fugued place. A torsion as in Loyola who set his days on edge by emptying them out. No conceptual body, but this body, which forgets itself. One month ago in Boston, I made love to a man on a roof. It was as if some giant hand grabbed us up and emptied us out. Dangerous nights, stars spilling over the city and below us a poet whose work I admire, dying of drugs on Joy Street. This is what the poem says, Money used to talk, now it goes without saying. At night, I turn off my mind, go to a bar, go with my body, this hunk of meat that dances like wild and crazy flowers in the wind. I live my life by writing it. You will not know me except by what is said on this page, and my life is an open book. Feast of St. Dominic, his emblem, a star and a dog with a torch in its mouth tongues of fire, foraging around the garbage. A man, how did he get in? He seems to be straightening it up, stacking cardboard by the wall. What are you doing, the landlord hollers from his window. I live here, the stranger shouts back defiantly. He still insists on his pride. No, you don't, get out, X yells back. 
Two other tenants, husky young men, raced down the back stairs to confront the man. Okay, I'm leaving, but I can only move so fast. A brick flies from the window, missing the man by inches. A cold fist squeezes my guts. Things lost, a small leather case, a cat, a feeling inside me that I'm good and beautiful and that this world will continue tomorrow. T. With increasing frequency, class struggle takes off its gloves. Thank you very much. <laughs> The next reader is Naylin Blake. Uh, I, wow, a lot of people showed up when I first got here. Um, uh, thank you so much for um, allowing me to be part of this. Um, I'm going to read three things. Uh, first is for, um, for Reza Baraheni. Tommy Trentino, and Genady Trifonov. To break a jaw is not to break a word or line of truth from what otherwise would be. Truth flows, an invisible river that cannot be dammed, made solitary, or changed from its inevitable course. See how rivers run down mountains seeking the sea? This is how poems are made, not as your rules or laws, or even as the distant rich oppress the poor, driving them to terrorism, but simply as rain falling, as snow melting in the sun. There's an atmosphere in the cerebellum, wrote Tommy Trantino, and when I move my right hand, the whole universe moves. This too, not because the poet said or willed it, but because birds sing and lotus petals fall. So open up your prisons, authorities and fearful ones. Dismiss your torturers. Let poets see the sky once again. That you jail, maim, and kill people is nothing. The Caesars did as much, all in the name of order, and yet they too came to sleep with worms. Nations, empires, and economic systems all grow and die like flowers in a field. And gardeners might sooner stop the seasons than you could stop poetry from flowing through the ragged mesa of the human heart. Um, this is a sonnet to bless a marriage. It's Sunday, and bells toll, or if not, the birds, when blue enters a poem all around, all sound flees fear, fear a deeper sliver than time. Where it will go to your tentative eyes implore, oh, sorry, um, where will it go, your tentative eyes implore? We are born old, little fish in the sky of dreams, spawn children, houses, love. Touch each other gently. Say, I do. Nothing else matters. No matter how long we live, we'll never be through. This is the vow anointed in all choices. It's true. Even the dreams of mutes are full of voices. And um, last is hit by a space station. Those are, I don't, I guess a bunch of us probably remember Skylab in this room. <laughs> Um, 
Certain events are not unlike new snow, but fall as children waking up from dream. Such it was when I met you. A space station might thus have fallen upon us. We wore expressions of perpetual surprise that we could still be moved by love. Oh, much maligned Uranians in love, this age would fling us aside as dirty snow that we produce as cause for a surprise. It's said we live in a world of twisted dream and that this is not the least complaint against us, yet our hearts melt into vast and empty space, somehow creating a new order of space, a healing place for nature, our falling in love which flows, surges, takes meaning beyond us, like maple sap rising above snow. We rise above cold dogmatic dream into the sunny music of surprise. We wear expressions of perpetual surprise that many cannot comprehend this cosmic space. Might aliens on UFOs dream preferable variants of love? Love frolics as children in fresh snow, an unexpected wonder between any of us. So too protons and electrons charge inside us that they dance at all is the surprise that stops us cold as sudden snow. Scary too, as falling, but to space into rigid rules, all the ways of love would kill the nucleus, the very heart of dream. The time has come, we must defend our dream, proclaim this as what is best in us. Where would we be without our variant love? The world would shrivel, would die, Without surprise, boredom would be the sole master of space, and summer joys would perish under constant snow. Releasing dream, we shower the world with surprise, spontaneous as light. We redeem this space as satellites orbiting dead snow. Coda. Love came apart in his hands. What hit him? Some said he wore a mask of rubber bands also a mask of perpetual surmise. Next is Matthew Rodriguez. Hi everyone. I also wanna thank Alicia for inviting me to be here. And very quickly, I want to dedicate and just call uh, the name of my father, who passed away from AIDS-related complications in 2011. His name was Alfredo Rodriguez. And uh, this January 8th would have been his 64th birthday. So thank you. I'm going to read two short poems. The first one is called Giving Witness. Sidelong glance toward chance profile. At odds with the high altitude of your own self, a dent in your identity momentarily fit into. Then there was me. To be precise, it was like an egg on your face. I loved you, stuck in the middle of, that intrigued me. No swoop sweeping of gesture. Thumbs up, we swerved to avoid ballooning upward over the rooftops, over the trees. Look, Ma, no hands, as if every day. But how can I say this to you who've already lost the meaning of lies in our seduction, ribbons and rice? 
To begin again, we munch our lunch, coleslaw and sandwich, each longing for the delicacy of one line turned in on itself, a tape loop, of per or perfect love affair, a perpetual wedding of risk and surprise ritual, in which hand over hand we climbed the curious beanstalk, and who at the top but Michelangelo murmuring, this drawing for you, Master Tommaso, or Leonardo shaking his head, not again, Giacomo. No, genius didn't lay her golden eggs for nothing. Now my own kid draws me a picture. She values it with utmost concentration, cries out at every defect. Who knows, but an earthquake will not swallow us both. I fiddle with Newsweek, with my TV dinner, with the damn knob on the seat itself. I scratch my leg. I tell you this, that you might not feel so scared and stupid out there all alone. Uh, this poem is called After Reading Cotylus. I have run after those boys, they with flippant heads, posing as gods or sacred wrynecks aflutter. I would elevate them on a pedestal, all right, and hoist them up for all to admire. Oh, down to faith's last drop, I would. But I have lost confidence in this religion. Today, it is not bodies or even love men worship, but some oblique gamesmanship, some mind wherein we pretend to court gods none believe. It's as if the temple were hung with rags, behind which stand no trace of any word but word of mouth and that from the biggest liar in town. Yet I rejoice. My heart is blank, and after time in the countryside, I have learned to love myself. Our next reader is Todd Colby. Thank you. Um, I feel so, such a deep affection for, um, for Steve Abbott's work and for his, his spirit. And as I read these poems, I, I feel this, and I look at these photographs, and I think he, he, he would have been my friend, and I, just this closeness in a way that is great. And, but I also feel, as I was sitting there, I also feel great gratitude for Alicia, who he was a big part in making and bringing to this world. And so it's nice to not only have this, but you. So. Um, so I'm going to read just a couple short ones, but um, Lives of the Poets is such a, a really great thing, and Alicia had initially recommended this a long time ago, but it, it's really beautiful. I'm going to read just a couple short pieces from this because it's worth it. <clears throat> Thinking of boredom, I'm reminded of a security guard in my office building who sits by the door all day asking, how's it going? Keats learned everything he could from his teachers, then surpassed them. He avoided literary feuds. I stop reading Keats' biography on page 290 because I never want my friendship with him to end. And the, the last one, um, sorry, yeah. Born into an impoverished family, 
he joined the military. For five years, he was enslaved by Turkish pirates. He was unable to find work afterwards, perhaps because of the stutter and maimed left hand. So he became a tax collector. At this, and in love too, he was unsuccessful. Scornful of theater that valued profit over art, he used the names of real people in his writing, along with the characters such as necessity and opportunity. Other writers were more popular, but he refused to give up. With his country in the midst of plague, war, economic hardship, and the Inquisition, he was unjustly imprisoned at the age of 50. Now he begins writing Don Quixote. Okay. So here's the two short poem parts. It's called Poem of an Epileptic Student Caught in Watts Riot, 1965. I feel so emotional suddenly. It was just like... Death filled his fingernails on my spine last night. I felt them tingle towards the light bulb in my pad. Then it was all right. Euthrasia, my cat, pawed and mewed, for she sensed it quite irregular that our one room should flash in bathed rainbow hues. Minuscule vines enveloped a papered patch of wall, broke forth in flowers, frenzied over the dais in the hall, not at all resembling grandmothers back in Iowa. And I thought, how strange that mother, who was a painter, did not capture this before her fall. And the last one is poem for Joe Mauser. One, out of the half shadows, you. Out of the shadows, a lamp, an eye. A lame excuse, and we trick together sometimes later to become lovers? No word exists to define our union, bodies merged in italics. But when we couldn't talk, we dropped acid and walked in the park. You show me a garden of succulents, making me wonder at so many species, one in particular bursting with splashes, a yellow explosion. I don't know its name, but wish we could fuck. At home, instead, our tongues entwined, swinging on each other like gates till we fall half out of bed. Oh, marvelous. My head glides so far away from them, from, from all this, it seems buried deep in books. I try to escape from you in. You touched my body. I came alive. Two. All the books we read lie. No prince or princess kisses sleeping lips. No forest falls from that castle called the self. The moon turns its cyclops eye, goes peacefully through changes. It doesn't care what anyone thinks or feels. Why can't we accept this? I wanted to say something dumb like, I love you. But before I could, you ran fingers silently over my face. Then it rained, and words fled. We shut our eyes when we screwed till our bodies bled. 
Thank you. The next reader is Ariel Goldberg. Hi, everyone. Um, I knew Steve and know him through his literature and through his writing and through the great energy in life um, that he brought to the page and also was a great inspiration to me to learn about community organizing and poetry spaces and not always poetry spaces. And I remember the first time I ever did archival research in a library was with Steve Abbott's papers at the SFPL and um, the left-right conference like pamphlet, he wrote up the Q&A tape recorded session, feverishly I could feel it. It was really exciting to encounter that text. So I'm gonna read, um, and I think this was a highly coveted um, selection from the book, so <laughs> I feel a little guilty even that I got it. It's called Dialing for Sex. It's a rainy Wednesday morning. You have the day off and feel bored, horny. Paging through the Sentinel, you see phone sex ads where the bathhouse ads used to be, even 11 to be exact. When one just is not enough, teases a blue banner headline above four photos of attractive nude guys. Only 95 cents, conference call, 976, BODS, not a recorded message. Staring at the phone, I feel silly. I want to see a guy's eyes, face, how he moves his hands. 80% of all communication lies in body language, psychologists say. If I'm calling someone I really like, I sometimes stare nervously at the phone for 20 minutes before dialing. Like Dean, a guy I met last summer whose phone voice was hypnotic. Just as certain opera singers can hit a pitch that shatters glass, the, tim the timber of Dean's voice automatically gave me a hard-on. Or was it how he'd start to murmur? Is language innately sexual with some words carrying extra voltage? Murmur, for instance. <laughs> I'm really getting into it. Or spank. All SP words turned me on, actually, speak, spark, sperm. If I heard Dean's voice on the phone now, I'd swoon. Screwing my courage to the sticking place to steal Shakespeare's metaphor, I dialed 976 bods. A scratchy, rapid-fire recorded message says, welcome to the gay conference line. You'll be connected up to, eight to, up to eight other guys. Start talking and enjoy. Hi, I began hesitantly. I'm Steve, and I'm looking for someone. Is anyone there? Dead silence. I babble on inanely a minute more before hanging up, feeling foolish, irritated, relieved. <laughs> I hang up and smoke a cigarette. Then my phone rings. Is Bods calling me back? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Stan, a friend I can make a real date with. We chat, I relax, smoke another cigarette. When our conversation's over, I return to the phone sex ads. Some turn me off right away. Sleaze Line offers trucker, bikers, B&D. On the opposite page, a smaller ad catches my eye. Is that my heartthrob Lou Cass on the couch? My girlfriend's gone and I'm horny, says the headline. So I dial 976 rods. <laughs> a young voice answers. 
I was on my way home from the gym when I see this hot punker get off the bus. He was carrying a skateboard and I could see he had a big, hard dick. He followed me home to my apartment and a recorded message, but the script's well-written, actually believable, and the narrator gets breathy and excited as he builds up steam. I can imagine I'm right there. Voyeurism lies at the heart of all good storytelling. You haven't really had the experience until you've shared it. So porn, like gossip, confirms our human identity. We need it to exist like we need air to breathe because we're social animals. Repress it and we will pop up in your dreams. Thank you. It's Hugh Ryan. I just want to say thank you to everyone tonight for being here, uh, particularly, obviously, Kyle and Alicia and Jamie for making this all possible, but I think it's uh, the room tonight also makes it really special. So I'm going to read a couple of uh, pages from an unpublished essay called The Malcontent. <clears throat> the next day I told Jim he had to leave. He'd broken every promise he'd made, from doing dishes to paying rent. Reluctantly, sullenly, he agreed and moved in with someone else for a while. Then he returned, begging to live with me again. I have a new policy, I said. Perhaps my lip curled here. I was eating lunch, not standing in front of a mirror. Anyone who stays with me now, from now on, has to sleep with me. <laughs> to my surprise, Jim agreed. What should bother him about us sleeping together? That he loved me, I didn't doubt. How could he keep hugging and kissing me otherwise? His embraces were as heartfelt and gripping as mine. One morning, I awakened to find him next to me naked. I didn't touch him. Yet that same night, he pleaded to sleep in the other room because he was breaking into hives. I was unrelenting. If I had to suffer, so would he. A week later, Jim glued himself to a TV tribute to John Lennon. Explaining I was sick and had to work the next day, I asked him to take the TV into the other room so I could sleep. When he didn't budge, I turned it off. Jim stormed into the kitchen and then returned. Stephen, you're fucking stupid. I flew at his throat like a demon. For three yards from bed to door, my feet didn't touch ground. I wanted to kill, but Jim was wiry and far stronger than I thought. He seized my head in a vice-like grip as I flailed at him with fists. We rolled onto the dining room table covered with books and dishes and crashed onto the floor. Get the fuck out of here. I would if you'd let me up, you damn faggot. The words stung. I remember a fight I'd had with an Indian boyfriend. You little brown bastard, I'd yelled after Bill lied to me about breaking something. Bill laughed at me for betraying my buried racism. So, too, I felt pleased with having smoked Jim out. When I let go of Jim, I was still shaking. Jim backed off, grabbed his backpack, and left. It was after midnight and cold outside. Where would he go? Phoning Irene, I told her what had happened, including him calling me a faggot. A couple days later, I saw Jim on Height Street. We paused for a second, then embraced. He'd taken a room in Berkeley. How he'd gotten across the bay that night or come up with the money for it, he didn't say. I didn't ask. Maybe it'll sound weird, I said, but fighting you felt terrific, more cathartic than fucking. Jim laughed, but admitted he felt much the same. He took out a cigarette. One match went out, and he struck another. Then I brought up the touchier subject. Still think I'm a faggot? 
Jim looked me full in the eye. I never said that. Irene said you thought I did, but I didn't. What I called you was a damn fuckhead. I'd never call you a faggot, even if I was angry. Jim seemed so certain, he shook my certainty. A few days later, he came over to gather up his belongings. He still had no job and was returning to his mom in Florida. He seemed sad to be leaving. I didn't expect to ever see or hear from him again. Ted leaned back in his chair and laughed. The trouble with you, Abbott, is you expect these guys to be grateful. You expect people to count on them. Maybe they do love you, but just trying to survive takes all their energy. That was one view. I heard others. Sharon, who was straight and wanted me for herself, considered Jim no more than a leech. Like Brian, she felt he had no redeeming qualities. Bill and Lendon understood my fascination for lost waifs, but considered me to be lucky to be rid of him. But Meg, a lesbian mother and astrologer, liked Jim and couldn't understand why we weren't sexual. He's a Scorpio. <laughs> His chart complements yours perfectly. Since Scorpios love sex and your Venus is in Scorpio, you should be having a ball. Meg laughed, shaking the crystals, medallions, and scarves wrapped around her neck. She'd heard about my gym problems for so long, she considered them something of a joke. Leaning her elbows forward on the marble-top cafe table, she peered at me through thick, red-rimmed glasses. Know what I think? Before I could answer, she continued, I think you choose wimpy guys like Jim because they're the only ones who can't control you. Maybe you really don't want to love her at all. Jack didn't have an opinion since he'd never met Jim, but Dodie's opinion, as always, was pointed. <laughs> Straight guys don't like to hang around with gay guys. Dodie was fascinated with my Jim problem enough to comment on it in one of her poems. I said to the one with the poodle tie, how could he possibly be in love with you but feel no physical attraction? He took another bite of lemon cake, obviously not seeing the contradiction. So I went on, the first thing you have to do is figure out which half of him is lying. Judy, like Jack, had never met Jim but felt that people didn't need to love to have sex to be lovers. Uh, that was a couple months before she left her own lover of 10 years. Most women I knew felt Jim was gay, but in the closet, whereas the opinions of my male friends were varied. A couple gay men sympathized with him, while others felt he was on a manipulative power trip that, by extension, affected them, too. <laughs> Brad, for instance, felt that Jim should be spanked and fucked. Is every frame a frame-up? Like meaning trailing into an endless web of signifiers, my problems with friends also trailed into infinity. Ted was in a rut and wanted to limit me to cafe gossip. Sharon wanted to marry me. Brian was full of complaints about everyone. And Bill and Lendon dropped out of my life shortly after Jim. Jack was sarcastic, had an irritating habit of poking me in the ribs. Dodie got furious if I was ever late. Brad felt superior to me and once insisted on giving me a lecture on why he didn't take drugs anymore while I was on MDMA. <laughs> Is this fair? Brad says no. My comments about Ted and the others aren't fair either, but that's my point. All viewpoints are skewed. Do we gossip less for this? <laughs> I marvel at Brad's tenderness as well as his brilliance, but I don't fully agree with his portrait of me either. Not untrue, exaggerated. For a complete view, we just have to describe the whole universe. These are a few of the problems with a few of my friends. There was also W, who is lethargic and unavailable. 
X, who was insulting, Y, who was opportunistic and never repaid favors, Z, who had such a foul temper, I finally broke completely. Make a list of your friends. Which is longer, those kept, those lost, or those you'd like to get rid of? Thank you. And the next reader is Luis Jaramillo. Thank you. Um, so I'm here because uh, my father went to the Immaculate Conception Seminary with Leisha Abbott's father, Steve Abbott. And uh, Steve Abbott became Steve Abbott, and my father became a lawyer. Um, <laughs> and I'm reading a poem called Elegy, which is an amazing poem. And also, so I asked um, Alicia for a suggestion, and she suggested this poem, Elegy, uh, which is the one poem I've ever taught from Steve Abbott's canon. Um, the first timepieces time pieces were encased in delicate silver skulls. Momento mori, you may smile to hear this, since much of what we say is gallows humor. We would die laughing, but time encases us both as we are young and healthy. It was not always so. I recall floating up from one wrinkled corpse with total delight. It was maybe the 16th century, and I fled into exile to escape the stake. First goes sight, then hearing, touch, taste, and finally smell. So say the Tibetan monks who wrote their Book of the Dead. Whether fire, loneliness, or love hurts more than death, I don't know. But I'm reminded of driving 14 hours to Key West and lying beside you, only to hallucinate your beautiful face a grinning skull. I lost the poem that spoke of this. When I lost my first lover, murdered by an AWOL Marine, I drove around all night howling helplessly, yet no one could hear me. The windows were up. Before my wife died, she dreamt of our fish tank breaking and all the fish flopping into the street. No one would help her save them. She was a psychologist and fell in love with a psychotic patient, a kid who wanted to kill everyone in a small town. He was fantastic in bed. Although he hated queens, he imagined me coming toward him like Jesus with a garland of roses on my head. I knew this boded ill fortune. The dead communicate to us in strange ways, or is it only because it is so ordinary we think it strange? I don a dark suit and wear a white veil, pretend I'm a monastery prefect reading the cloud of unknowing. The top of my head floats effortlessly into past or future perfect. An ancestor of Virginia Woolf, one James Prattle, put in a cask of spirits when he died and thus shipped back to his wife. She went crazy. It's difficult to conceive what the Black Death meant to 14th century Europe. That Hebrew tribes and Roman legions massacred whole cities is generally forgotten. But then so too is Auschwitz. Life is bleak enough under the best of conditions. I wonder if a book of poems has ever been written about murderers. If not, I'd like to write one. Caligula, Justinian, one could do volumes on the late Roman emperors alone. But what is more terrible than the death of one child? The last poem would be about Dan White, the Twinkie killer, and his love for green Ireland, its terrible beauty. 
When I learned my wife's skull was crushed by a truck, my head swam like an hourglass into a TV sweat. All the channels went crazy. Crickets sounded like Halloween noisemakers, and I remember explaining the event to our two-year-old daughter with the aid of her Babar book. Babar's mother was shot by a mean hunter, and that makes Alicia sad even now. We distance ourselves for protection. Wear scarves when it's cold. What seems most outlandish in our autobiography is what really happened. It is only circumstances that make death a terrible event. She dreamt of our fish tank breaking and all the fish. You should not have to burn your hand every day to feel the mystery of fire. And the next reader is the amazing Sarah Schulman. Steve at the uh, Outright Conference in San Francisco in 1990. And Naylan, you were there. Was anyone else there? There's only two of us left. It's crazy. We were introduced by Kevin Killian, who used to always carry around an autograph book. And then he treated all of us like we were famous celebrities, right? And there were so many people at that conference who died of AIDS. It's Remarkable, I'm thinking there's Bo Houston, Robert Hewell, George Stambolian, Craig Harris, John Preston, Essex Hempel. Uh, was Melvin Dixon at Outright in 1990? You think so? Okay. Anyway, and so thank you, Alicia, for all the work that you've done to so that Steve is remembered and also uh, amazingly, tens of thousands of people's parents died of AIDS, but Matthew and Alicia are two of the very few who have talked about it publicly. Um, it's, it's the one AIDS constituency that has never really been constituted, and I'm so grateful to both of you for all the work that you've done. Okay, and this was selected by Kyle. Revisioning who we are. To fight AIDS and the conditions that threaten us, we need more than scientific research, more than money, more than leadership. We need to rethink America's spiritual, political, social, and cultural systems at the most fundamental root level. How do we use power? How do we use language? It is clear that what we are doing now as bosses and workers, as men and women, as gays and straights, as whites and non-whites is killing us all. And as we project these attitudes onto other species and towards the Earth's ecological system, we're jeopardizing our very planet. I would argue that today, we can no longer afford to see anything, not even gay liberation or our survival as a separate issue needing a separate cultural, political, or spiritual agenda. This does not mean I intend to renounce my sexual orientation, far from it. Even in times of sadness or loneliness, it remains my greatest source of strength and joy. But if my sexuality is a social construct, I can change how I think about and act on it. 
Now, gay is good doesn't have to mean what I used to think, that I need a lot of sex or a lover to be happy, nor need it mean the opposite, stoic celibacy. It can also apply to how I center and balance myself, how I choose and nurture friendships, how I support my community, and when I consider or have sex, can I change how I think about it to admire, share, and enjoy beauty without trying to use, own, or consume it? Pleasure is good, but we are not objects. And contrary to what fashion ads and some songs suggest, neither are we just images or toys. In work and play, how can I free myself from the hype of competitive stress? Can I learn to accept and find joy in the present moment, even when it's not what I might prefer? Can I continue to take risks, to redefine myself? Can I wake up from sexism, racism, ageism, and careerism without becoming obsessed about being politically correct? Can I set and fulfill goals while still allowing spontaneity? In short, can I take my energy glue out of the worry, fear, consumer trap? These are some of my questions. What are yours? What do you hope for? Each of us must take more responsibility for our own lives as well as for our collective life. Instead of doomsaying, we must participate more fully in social and cultural institutions and change them as indeed we are. We have achieved what we have because we dared to dream and to risk acting on those dreams. This must remain our commitment. Sitting with my friend. AIDS is neither a curse nor a blessing, it just is. I see its inexorable progression in a 24-year-old friend whom I've been sitting with every Friday for the past nine months. I got to know JD in a healing workshop. He came up to me one night and gave me a hug because he said he just felt I needed one. JD is such a beautiful person. I found it hard to believe at first that he was sick, but last fall he became bedridden. I wasn't sure if I could cope with helping care for him. I'm not trained as a nurse, but it was just something that needed doing, so I did it. I felt awkward at first, but he encouraged and gave me confidence. Words can't tell what I've learned from JD about myself, about life. Sitting with him every Friday and watching his courage and dignity in the face of this disease has been one of the most intimate, inspiring experiences of my life. It's not always been easy, certainly, not for JD, his lover, his parents, or for any of us, but it's been real. Often we've sat for hours together and said nothing, yet said more than most people ever do. His hands flutter like butterflies. He sometimes suffers delusions, but don't we all? Because I'm antibody positive, I know I may be in JD's position myself someday, still alive but fading, with little control of body or mind. We all die differently, just as we all live differently. I don't know what it will be like for me, but I'm no longer afraid. 
I still feel angry, frustrated, or self-pitying sometimes, often over the most trivial incidents. But when I'm with JD, these feelings drop away, and I'm filled with such a profound gratitude to be alive, to be gay, and to have the friends I have and I have had that I cannot explain it. It's a simple fact that someday all of us will die. Maybe our entire planet will, but I also know now more deeply than ever that our lives, our culture, and our world are too beautiful to throw away. Okay. And next, next is Alicia. Thank you uh, so much, Sarah and Luis and Todd and Nayland and Ariel and Hugh and Matthew um, and Jamie um, and Alyssa. <laughs> Sorry, my dear friend right in front of me. I was looking up farther, uh, like, and my dear friend Alyssa. Um, this is really incredible. Uh, to be here, and um, and I really also want to thank um, the St. Mark's Poetry Project and um, Stephen with Nightboat Press for publishing this, and Jamie for all of his hard work putting together this collection, and we dedicated this book to Kevin Killian, who put us in touch and who sadly uh, died of cancer just, um, he died just two months um, before it was published. So I'm going to start uh, with an e reading an excerpt from um, a piece that my dad wrote called My Kid, um, which was an interview, a fake interview, um, that never was published. It was uh, in the, the archives and his papers at the San Francisco Public Library, which I had read and, and Jamie um, put into this book. Um, and then I'm going to read uh, from my afterward. Um, Why haven't you written more about Alicia? We're too close. It would be too scary. Also, I tend to write out of my obsessions, and she doesn't fit into them very directly. When Alicia was younger, I did get some poems out of things she said, especially when she was still learning and exploring the language. She'd say things like, why is the moon following us? or open these flowers or beware. I can't do that anymore because she talks and thinks too much like I do now. What is the earliest memory of your own childhood? The first time I go out into the yard by myself, it's absolutely exhilarating. I can still smell the fresh grass, but the yard is so big, so vast, it's as huge as a battlefield. I've been told Dad's away fighting a war, so I, oppose that's why, I suppose that's why I think of this. Then, far away, across the street, I see a little blonde girl about my age. She just stands there, gazing at me. Neither of us speaks. I'm too terrified to either move or speak. This must be what war is like, I think, staring into the eyes of a total stranger, total freedom, total death. And your earliest childhood dream? I'm in the yard naked. 
My friends Randy and Marsha are across the street. They're naked too and call for me to come over for Marsha's birthday party. I want to go, but when I step into the street, fire engines shriek by. Then my dad comes out. He's naked too. Come on, he says and crosses the street. I really want to go, but when I step into the street again, more fire engines roar by. Run, daddy calls, but I'm too scared. I had this dream several times between kindergarten and second grade. It was worse when I was sick with a fever. No one could protect me. Ever since, my nightmares have all involved sex or being in cars which go out of control. Before leaving Santa Fe for San Francisco, for instance, I dreamt the highway narrowed into this weird house with a dark, long hallway. A weasel in the hallway tried to bite me. The dream made me anxious and I considered postponing the trip, but didn't. About 50 miles from Flagstaff, my Toyota hit a patch of ice. I was going 60 when the car skidded off the highway, but the speed had slowed to 30 or 40. Then the car started rolling. This may be it, I thought, and I just totally relaxed. Amazingly, the only damage was a cracked windshield and a flat tire. I wasn't even scratched. On another occasion, I was hit by a speeding car in Rome. My life flashed before my eyes as I flipped into the air. This time, I only cracked two teeth, but it dawns on me the feeling of being in an out-of-control car is not unlike the feeling I had when Barbara first told me she was pregnant. You see, I thought she was using an IUD, and what I first felt was panic. Then I relaxed. Whereas the idea of fatherhood in the abstract terrified me, I found I could cope if I just took it one hour, one day, one step at a time. And so far, despite all the craziness and unorthodox parent, parenting situations I've found myself in, that's worked. When I let go of fear, life works. Um, and now I'm just going to read from the afterword, from the afterworld. I'm reading from the afterworld. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel a little bit I'm like Steve is here with us in the afterworld. In 1991, in 1991, I was living in Paris, finishing up my junior year abroad. By this point, my father had already gotten sick. He was taking infusions of medicine through a tube recently inserted into his chest, but he had downplayed his condition in his letters. When I saw him in person, he didn't look that different to me, but one night after dinner, he finally disclosed that six months earlier, He'd been diagnosed with pneumocystis, which meant he now had full-blown AIDS. The purpose of this visit to Paris was to ask me to move home and manage his end-of-life care. This being AIDS in 1991, that end-of-life could come very quickly. He calmly detailed his possible life expectancy and the personal effects he'd leave me. I was by turns restless, short-tempered, in denial, and self-pitying. I was just 20 years old at the time, and my dad was the closest person in the world to me, my whole family. I couldn't imagine, in fact, I was angry to imagine a life without him. What could I do for him? How could I help and support him in this state when I was so young and aimless myself? Remarkably, and 
this is something that really strikes me. Neither these difficult questions nor his diagnosis defined that visit to Paris. He was still very focused on his work as a writer. I couldn't see this at the time, but looking back, it's all I see. He didn't know how many months he had yet to live, but he was still so determined to publish and to teach, to create new work and conversation. Our letters from that time show that back in San Francisco, he was in contact with an agent hoping to find someone to represent his last work called Lost Causes, aptly called Lost Causes. And now in Paris, between dinners planned with my French boyfriend at the time, who happens to be standing in the back of this room, <laughs> who I didn't even know was in New York until a day ago when he saw I was on Instagram and said, I'm in New York, and so we met up, and this is his first time in New York since 1991. He's with his beautiful family, and he's here. See, I'm telling you, this is a, a, from the afterworld. Um, so in between these visits with my French boyfriend at the time and visits to cafe, he wanted to drop off several of his books at Shakespeare and Company and wanted me to accompany him to a party at the Pompidou Center. He also wanted me to take him to, to a meeting with Pascal Quinard, who was an editor at the French publishing house Gallimard who would later win the prestigious Prix Goncourt, and I was to be dad's translator. I remember sitting in this bookline office of this handsome, balding man, confident and well-dressed, smelling of expensive cologne, as all cultured French men do. And there we were, this nervous young girl and her sick father. Dad spoke about the new narrative writers, Kevin Killian, Dodie Bellamy, and Bob Gluck, and about the intentions of new narrative. And I did my best to make him heard and understood, but I also felt uneasy. I mean, what did this editor think? Was he impressed? What did Dad hope would come of this meeting? That he or his colleagues' work would be translated and published? As far as I know, that never happened or never because of this visit. But does it even matter? I helped him make this trip to the Gallimard offices 18 months before he died. We went to a party at the Centre Pompidou and browsed the shelves of Shakespeare and Company. He was, for that week, experiencing literary life in Paris. He had a tube in his chest. He'd come all the way from the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco to this office of the Gallimard Publishing House. What became of the meeting is less important than the fact it happened at all. Since his death, I've had many opportunities to revisit these memories and to discover new facets of his life and career. In 2012, I was working on my memoir, Fairyland, which tells the story of our life together. And I would regularly consult those papers at the San Francisco Public Library that Jamie spent so much time with. And it was there, sitting amongst these boxes of his notebooks and clippings and drawings, that I came across a stapled type story that he'd written for his MFA program that he was trying to finish then at San Francisco State. It was called No Trouble, No Story. And in it, he wrote about our life as reflected by me. He even swiped bits of writing I'd sent him in college that I wrote for my college assignments, repurposing it for his imagining of my fake memoir, much like I was doing with his old journals in writing Fairyland. Like, I was stealing from him and then found out he had been trying to steal from me. And I immediately thought of that famous lithograph, you might know, M.C. Escher drawing hands, where two hands rise from the flat sheet of paper and the viewer is never sure which hand 
is drawing which hand. We were both wanting to tell our story, both wanting to author the other. Another recent surprise came courtesy of one of my dad's friends who let me know that audio of my dad's readings and workshops at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, are, they're available online now. And I found this 1991 recording of a workshop he led called Writing Against Death, which he described for me in a letter. Quote, I read Elegy, then a poem about someone with AIDS, then some prose by someone who has AIDS, and there were about 75 people in the class and things really began to get emotional, especially when I had students write about death and read their work, end quote. Then I listened to those readings he gave in July of 91 and 92. I just did this. This is just, you know, a year ago I discovered this. I cannot convey to you how startling it was to reacquaint myself with my dad's reading voice, especially how it sounded that summer of 1992, the last summer of his life. I listened to those recordings. I listened to them with my eyes closed, lying in my bed, the computer next to my pillow, there was just something so incredibly fragile, almost painfully present about his voice. He's so open about his illness and the loss of his eyesight due to CMV retinitis. If I stumble, he tells the audience, it's because I'm trying to guess at the words with my remaining half good eye. He's not embarrassed when he does stop to wrestle with the text or to read a line that he'd accidentally skipped. It's as though he has nothing left to lose, no status, no face, that would make another writer, a writer like me, self-conscious. And in this reading he gives to the Naropa community, he just gives all of himself. And it almost upsets me to listen to. Like, I want to protect it and say, Dad, hold yourself back. You don't need to give that much. Just keep a little bit. But the audience at Naropa in 1992, they love him for it. They sit hushed and they laugh and they applaud when he's done. Quote, everyone at Naropa kept saying how brave I am, he wrote me. But I don't feel brave. Life is just one day at a time, that's all. Two months ago would have been my dad's 76th birthday. December 2nd. I turned 49. This means I have officially outlived my dad. He died at age 48. So it's and thinking about this, I realize just how premature his death really was. In the 70s and 80s, when my dad was at his most productive, there was little interest in LGBTQ literature. The Lambda Literary Awards weren't instituted before 1988, and, and queer studies weren't yet taught in school. Today, however, the audience for queer stories in queer history is large and growing. Photos and stories are pulled out of basements and dustbins and brought to light in Instagram accounts like the AIDS Memorial and LGBT history and amazing sites. There are queer memoirs, biographies, novels, and history books getting acclaim you know, commercials and commercial success. And notably, I've noticed, many of these stories are being told by younger generations of queer writers and scholars, writers like Hugh Ryan, who's here in the audience, um, writers who, who in some ways it seemed want to, and also obviously Jamie, um, who claim this, uh, this, this queer, this history as their own rich inheritance. Kids who are the same age I was that summer my dad and I met in France can now take 
LGBTQ classes and read queer lit in their core classes. They're going to be able to read this book in their core classes. It's just amazing to me. My father would have loved to see this. He would have loved to participate. And maybe if he were still alive and working, maybe he would have received the recognition and financial stability that eluded him in life. But then again, really, that wasn't the point of his work. It's hard to remember how different it was then. It really was clear to me as I was reading his journals. His engagement with and championing of queer literature was far more, about far more than fame or money or status. Or It was this idea that there would ever be about money was so preposterous that I imagined to be freeing. For my dad, his work was about building community. It was about hand illustrating posters for the readings he organized that you're seeing some of, like right there. Copying them and stapling them on bulletin boards all over San Francisco that he had to take you know, the bus to get to. It was about editing and publishing suit magazines on his own dime so he could interview and excerpt the writers and artists who so excited him. It was about going out and engaging young men and women in classrooms, but also in cafes and bars and bookstores all around San Francisco. This happened in real life, in person. It's the only way it could happen. And for him, he wanted to share his vast knowledge and encourage everyone he spoke to to add their voices to queer culture in whatever way they could, even if that culture wasn't yet getting mainstream attention. He knew how important it was to support voices on the edge and writers that were pushing boundaries and weren't interested in keeping their readers comfortable. Although I once felt jealous of my dad's work, it was my main rival in some ways growing up. It was often his generosity with other writers that took him away from me. Because remember, he was a single dad. I didn't have siblings. It was like very intense relationship. I know how lucky I am to have loved and been loved by a writer. Friends who had lawyer dads have legal briefs to read in their absence. Accountant dads leave tax returns. <laughs> Yet I have this wealth of this poetry and prose and cartoons, as you can see. And in the more than 25 years since he's gone, I've had time to truly sit with his work. He shaped in the compromised privacy of his home office which was really just a corner of his bedroom. We lived in a, we shared a one bedroom in the corner of Hayton Ashbury. And now I can read it as an adult, a fellow writer instead of just as his daughter. And now I can do that because of the publication of this book, which we are all here to celebrate, that is so remarkable to me that it is coming, um, the, you know, in 2020 after he died in 92. So thank you all for being here and for making this possible. Thank you. Thank you again to all of the readers. Thank you, Nightboat. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, Jamie. Um, thank you for sharing such deeply felt readings of Steve's work. Um, we're going to be back on Wednesday, February 26th, with Young Mi Kim and Eleni Sicilianos. And then on February 28th, Friday, we're back with Ariel Goldberg. Um, who has guest curated um, The Unseen Document, two talks and a conversation with Eric Keenigan and Sarah Miller on 
Bernice Abbott and Muriel Ruckheiser and queerness under Cold War era surveillance. Um, so come back. Good night. <laughs>